0: Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. We've been going through a year of love. What does that mean? It sounds weird, right? Um, It's not like the summer of love in the 60s, but it's a year of love based on scripture. We challenged you in January to begin to read through scripture. We gave you reading uh, material, you know, a guide to follow through so you could read through the scripture in a year from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we gave you, if you remember, a pink highlighter And the pink highlighter was for highlighting from Genesis to Revelation, evidence of God's love. And I hope you've been taking up that challenge. I hope you've been doing it. Uh, We are halfway through the year or we're getting halfway through the year. At the end of June, we'll be halfway through this year. And if you're behind on your reading, that's okay. Maybe you need to take off from work and catch up. I mean, that's what I'm gonna do. (laughs) Anywho, um, so just just catch up as you can and continue to remember to highlight where you see evidence of God's love. When we come into this aspect of love, as we read of the definition of love, Paul's definition in 1 Corinthians 13, we've been kind of segmenting that definition throughout the whole year. And this month, June, a five-Sunday month, we're looking at the aspect of love that is not jealous. Love is isn't jealous. I was trying to think earlier on in the year, well, what would would be the best way to illustrate love, not being jealous scripturally, biblically. And and it's a little outside the norm for me because I usually take a book or a whole segment of scripture that's, that's long and we will read through it. But we're gonna spend a month on just one chapter in one book of the Bible. And that's chapter four of Genesis. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, uh, that is the very first book of the Bible, Genesis is, and it's the fourth chapter in, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this. This is a story of Cain and Abel. Are you familiar with Cain and Abel? Even if you're not a part of the church or never grew up in the church, my guess is you've heard of these two names. These were the sons of Adam and Eve, the first humans. Now, Adam and Eve had a myriad of different children. We think, well, the only children they had are the ones that are named. No, because there are different characters throughout scripture who had multiple children that weren't named. Adam and Eve are very similar to that. They didn't just have Cain and Abel. And then we have Seth that comes along later in the story. They didn't just have three sons. They had a ton of different daughters. They had other sons that aren't accounted for in scripture. And you start to think, well, who did they marry? Well, this was before the time that it was illegal to marry your sister or brother. So, and it was before that, and I know that sounds really gross to you, especially those of you who have siblings, or who have, uh, yeah, siblings. You think, I would never marry my brother. Well, they didn't have much of a choice, all right? I mean, who else were they gonna find? So anyway, that was, that's just a side note to Bunny Trail. We'll come back to that subject some other time. Maybe we'll hit a sermon series on some of the big questions of scripture, but right now we're gonna look at the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to best illustrate uh, jealousy, and I came across this illustration about Samuel Beckett who is an amazing uh, author, writer in Great Britain, or England, or in the United Kingdom. Uh, He was an Irish novelist, actually, and, and a playwright. Listen to his story, just a brief little snippet here. This guy, Samuel Beckett received this great notoriety and this great recognition for his work. And if you uh, uh, like any kind of literature, you probably are familiar with this work or at least his name, but not everyone savored his accomplishments. Uh, Beckett's marriage, in fact, was soured by his wife's jealousy of his growing fame and success as a writer. One day in 1969, his wife Suzanne answered the telephone. She listened for a moment and spoke briefly and then hung up. She turned to Beckett with, with this stricken look on her face and she whispered, what a catastrophe. Now, if you had gotten that message from your spouse after getting that phone call what would you think would be the catastrophe? Somebody's died, something's happened, uh, who who knows what's going on? So he's he's, he's struck with this, oh no, what is it? And she says, we just learned, I just learned that you've been awarded the Nobel Prize for literature. (laughs) Yeah, right? She was so jealous of her husband's accomplishments that she couldn't even rejoice with him in one of the greatest prizes for literature. This is what happened in the story of Cain and Abel. But before we get to that story this morning, how do you define jealousy? Um, I, I actually looked it up in the dictionary uh, and, and it's this, feeling resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success or advantages. Have you ever felt that way about anyone or anything? Have you ever felt resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages? This is where we pick up the story of Cain and Abel today. Would you read along with me? You don't have to read it out loud. Follow along with me. I'm reading from the New Living Testament this morning. Now, little ones under the age of 13, plug your ears. Now, Adam and Eve had sexual relations with his wife. I'm just kidding, you don't have to plug your ears on that, but it's in there. He had sexual relations with his wife Eve and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, "'With the Lord's help, I've produced a man.' Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground." There's really no major significance here. There are scholars that debate, well, because Abel worked with livestock, then he was more important. And we'll see in just a moment uh, where scholars really kind of bounce off of this idea that he was more important or more favored by God. Uh, Cain worked the ground. Go back just one chapter, Genesis 3. What was the curse given to Adam? Do you remember? The ground would be cursed, but he would have to work for it or work through it from the ground which he was taken to earn a living. And it wasn't gonna be easy because all it would produce is thorns and thistles and a hard life and sweat and blood. So Cain was given over to working the ground, Abel to overseeing livestock. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel in his gift, but he did not accept Cain in his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. That seems pretty harsh. That verse haunted me for a long time until I really dug in to figure it out. Well, how could God reject Cain in his offering, but not Abel in his offering? I mean, if just the sheer fact that Cain brought something should be enough, right? I mean, we have the saying... Well, God will take whatever little bits you're willing to bring and he'll multiply it a million times over. And and we do agree with that. There's, There's nothing wrong with that except there's a heart issue, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then God has this interaction with Cain. This made Cain very angry. He looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Now, this is a harsh thing coming from a person who's rejected you. And it seems like God is toying with him. But is he really? You will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Now, we're gonna focus on those seven verses this morning really quickly, but let me read to you the rest of the chapter and what unfolds that we're gonna be looking at the rest of this month. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, hey, let's go out into the fields. And and, and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I find it interesting. He didn't kill him where the livestock were, where they were where livestock were, where they were breed or breeding or grazing. He takes him into his territory to work, where he worked in the fields, and he killed him in his place and in his time. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, "Where's your brother? Where is Abel?" "I don't know," Cain responded. "Am I, bro- am I my brother's guardian?" What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be a homeless wanderer on earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here's the key point this morning in case you fall asleep after this. Jealousy when unchecked drives us to anger. Jealousy when unchecked drives us to anger. I don't think there's been a situation where I've experienced someone who's been jealous about somebody else not being angry in the end. Well, Anger when uncontrolled leads to death. I mean, the courtroom is full of this kind of stuff, passion and rage coming from jealousy because somebody has something that you want, or they have a lifestyle that you desire, or they have the girl or the guy that you so long for jealousy when unchecked drives us to anger. So jealousy when unchecked leads to anger and anger when unchecked leads to sin. But how does all of this tie together this morning? The first point is this, apathy toward God leads to rejection from God. Let me say that again. What is apathy? Apathy toward God, towards God leads to rejection from God. We live in a day and age where we have pretty much everything at our fingertips. Even the poorest among us has more than the poorest or than the vast majority of the rest of the world. We think we're poor, and I guess by the context of our culture, there are many in our culture that are poor by our culture standards, but not by the world standards. And so a lot of times, when we have pretty much anything we want, when we want it, even those of us that may not be able to afford mansions or the fancy cars, we still have more than most, we start to become a little apathetic and spoiled. We begin to think that we deserve what we get that is good, and that when we don't get it, a lot of times we get frustrated. Why? Because we think the world owes us something, or or we think God owes us something. Cain found himself in this situation. Do you know what happened in this situation? Did you catch the nuances of the story? It said, Cain, when the time of harvest came, brought some of his crops. There's a key word in there. What did he bring? Some. That's not bad, but it's not great. And the enemy of good, or the enemy of great is good, right? Yeah, I'm going to I'll bring you some of this. And then it says Abel. And it goes into great detail with Abel. Did you catch that? What does it say? He brought the best, the first fruits. See, Abel knew that God is God and he wasn't. And he knew that God deserves the best. Why does God deserve the best? Because, see, I think a lot of you may have a question mark in your mind. Well, why does God deserve the best? He has everything. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Why why does he need my best? Why does he need the best of what I produce? Why is that even important to him? That seems awful selfish of God. But let's think of who God is. Not only is he maker and creator of everything that you can see, taste, touch, hear, and feel, he is the ruler of all things in all places at all times. And he, out of his gracious, loving kindness, knelt down in that garden, and how did he create humans? Not by speaking them into existence, but by forming them from the dust of the ground. And he could have said, all right, wake up! But he didn't. He breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. He took great care to show us how much he loves us. He went above and beyond what you might conceive as the call of duty of any God to bring us life. He made sacrifices on our behalf. Now, now at Cain's day, in Cain's day and age, You say, well, what sacrifices did he make? Sure, we know thousands of years later he gave his son to die on a cross. That was a big sacrifice. But what did he do in Cain's day and age? Why did he reject Cain? Because there's a sacrifice on the heart that always matters to God, first and foremost above anything else you could ever offer him. And he knew when Cain came into his presence, he came with this apathetic, ho-hum kind of mentality. He say, here's some of the stuff that I got from my harvest. Now, is that reading into the text? Some scholars would say so. But most of what we understand about this passage of Scripture, even down to the root language of it, is that Cain came to give God a mere token. Whereas Abel came and gave the best, knowing it was going to cost him something. And I guess the question this morning is, when you look around and you see others making it better off than you are, or so you think just by outward appearances, do you get jealous? You think, God, I'm giving you my stuff. Well, God, how come you're blessing them? How come they're getting this? How co- they're not as good of a person as I am. Have you ever said that or thought that? And jealousy begins to take over. And like a tool of the enemy that always does, it destroys us from the inside out because it begins to take root and it begins to rot us. Because we are more consumed with other people and comparing ourselves rather than how God sees us and what he desires from us. And the enemy has won the battle over us when he begins to get us to look at other people and what they're getting as opposed to what we're not. We all get caught in this trap. Let's be honest. Pastors too. I can look at the church down the road and think, well, why are they getting more people? And they've got more budget money and they've got this, they've got that. It happens. Pastors aren't immune either. But I know what this feels like. I know what this looks like. But I also know the end result of jealousy, which leads to anger. It'll lead to sin and sin leads to death. That's what James tells us in the New Testament. What else do we find? Well, actually, let me, let me stop there. Here's this issue of the heart. If we go to Samuel, in the Old Testament, when the next king was to be chosen, not Saul, Saul was the king, and then David was chosen as king, but, but, but Jesse had a myriad of different sons, and he comes through, this is Samuel, he comes to, to find the next king through the house of Jesse, and he goes through every one of the brothers, and he comes to the one that he thinks is going to be it, and God nudges him, and says, ah, 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 not him. Oh, he may look good on the outside. Don't forget, I look on the heart. I look on the heart. God always looks on the heart. He, you may be able to fool everybody else in the world that you are this good and righteous and holy person, but if you're not, God sees it. God knows it. You can't avoid being known and found out by God. And this is what we know about Cain and Abel. God looks at the heart of the giver and when when one of us or all of us are apathetic, the gift is rejected. We don't like to hear that. Wait, if I give whatever, do you know there are times when God rejects his people? We don't like to hear that. When have you ever heard that preached from any stage, from any pastor that God rejects the offerings of people? No, we hear the good stuff, with just whatever little bit you wanna bring. Well, let's look in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 21. We find this lady, Jesus with his disciples, they're in the temple, and this lady, who's way off in a distance, well, not too far, but far enough, or close enough where they can see, Jesus catches catches her, and he sees her. Nobody else probably sees her other than just a nuisance to get out of the way, so that they could take their turn at the offering. And the offering wasn't taken up through plates, handed down the aisles. The offering in the temple was taken from these large uh, 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 bottles or or, or clay jars with a narrow neck. And, And they didn't have paper money. And they would come in and they would dump their bags of money in these. So it made a lot of noise as it clanged down through the tube of this offering. This offering chalice, if you will. And Jesus sees this lady, a widow, literally only had two mites to rub together. And a mite is a half a penny. If you take one of our current pennies and you cut it in half, that's, that's you eat one a half of that is about a mite. And Jesus says, guys, check this out. You see all these other people? They're giving out of the abundance that they have. They're giving some. It's not really a sacrifice what they're giving. But this lady, this widow these two mites that she just gave that barely made a clink when they hit the bottom, she gave everything she had. What is everything? How much percentage is everything? And we mumble that because we don't, like to, we don't really like to say it. <laughs> Pastors don't always like to hear that either. You know, I've been wrestling as a pastor for the past three years, going on four years now, with what total surrender means. This this idea in Jeremiah 29, chapter, or verse 13, not 12, not 11 to 12, but 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does that mean? What is all your heart? What is complete surrender? Is complete surrender 100%? Is it 95%, is it, is it 10%? This isn't a tithing sermon. I'm not trying to guilt you into giving more money. That's between you and God. As you've heard before, I don't look at your tithing records. I don't know what any one of you give, but it's more than money. Just as Cain and Abel's sacrifices were more than money, it was the heart of the issue. Cain brought some, Abel brought the best, knowing that it would cost him something. The second point this morning is this. Rejection from God is an opportunity for correction. See, oftentimes we, re, we, we view rejection, we feel rejected from God sometimes, and yes, sometimes he does reject us. Why? Because he wants to correct us. What does he do? He comes to Cain and he says, listen, why are you so angry and dejected? Well, because you, you rejected my gift. You accepted Abel's. Does this sound familiar? We feel, do you ever feel anger toward God? Frustrated that you don't get what you want? And other people seem to get more of what they want than you've ever gotten. When is it gonna be my turn, God? When are you gonna give me what I deserve? And he says, I've taken away what you deserve through the cross. You deserve death because all of you have sinned and fallen short of my glory. I give you grace. I give you opportunity. I give you opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity to make the course corrections that you need. And yes, I reject your offerings sometimes because I know it's not coming from a heart of true desire for me. It's just because you feel like you have to. How many of you enjoy getting gifts because somebody had to give it to you? Huh? Most of us don't. When you feel like somebody is giving you something because they feel obligated to give it to you, doesn't it diminish the gift a little bit? Yes or no? Yes. Thank you. I'm just making sure you're still with me. I, I, I don't want to lose you in the midst of all this. How much more so then with a perfect God who sees all, knows all, and stuff inside of you that you can't hide from him, if you're like, oh, I've got to do this again. Oh, here comes the offering plate. I guess I'll give it a little something, something. Oh, they want me to sign up to serve down at Fishbone. I mean. Ooh, I think I've got something going on that night. Oh, they're taking another fundraiser or another, uh, not fundraiser, but another, they're, they're collecting this stuff or this thing. And uh, yeah, I barely have enough time or enough resources to get myself this or that. See, God knows your heart. We don't, this is a hard message for me to preach because I know it's in your face. But Jesus was in your in your face, in our face, in my face. Every time I read scripture, I can't help but say, oh, that applies to me. Ugh, I wish it didn't. I wish everything I read in Scripture said, oh, look how good you're doing. You know, oh wow, you did great on that. And sometimes I get encouragement, yes. But there are more often times than not where I'm reading I'm like, oh, that's not fun. That really hurts. I I, I talk to the staff. We go through books a lot together and different resources together. But in the margins of some of the books or even the Bible, when I'm reading, I will write this four-letter word. (laughs) Don't let your mind go squirrely on me. It's O-U-C-H with an exclamation point. And I say, ouch, and I usually date it. You know, I'll put the date of the day that I read that, that I said, ouch, because I want to be able to go back to it and say, when did I say ouch? And have I recovered from the ouch to say amen? Amen. Right? Because that's how we learn. That's how we grow. Cain had an opportunity to grow. He had an opportunity through this rejection of God, who God then comes to him and said, why are you so dejected? Why are you so angry if you do what's right? Right? It's a good thing, but be careful, sin is crouching at your door. And too often, sin crouches at our doors like this, just waiting for the opportunity to pounce. Oh, you're feeling jealous, you're feeling angry, and you, you feel justified in your jealousy, anger, envy, frustration toward God, and you know what sin is doing? Say, oh, just open that door. Just open, even just a crack. If you could just open the door a little bit, come on. And God reminded Cain, sin is crouching. It's just waiting for you. You just open the door a crack. Let me, oh, just come on. Let me in. You know, the interesting thing is you get to Revelation chapter three and Jesus says, here I stand at the door and knock. How many of us open that door more than we open the door of sin crouching? Brandon, you just don't understand what I'm going through, the difficulty in life I'm struggling with. No, but God does. And he knows your frustration. He knows your anger. And he says to you, listen, I'm not going to reject you forever. If you do what's right, come on. Step up, I I know you could do this, I created you. I know the potential that's in you. I know everything about you and I know you could do this. But sin's crouching at your door and if you give in to the baser sin instincts in your life, you'll open that door and he will devour you. Don't let him do that. Rejection is an opportunity for correction. And correction from God is a chance for redemption. Correction from God is an opportunity for redemption. I'm going to read to you Malachi chapter one. And this is a bit of a long passage of scripture, but Malachi is a prophet in the Old Testament, we call him one of our minor prophets. And he's right before the New Testament. In Israel and Judah, they're in a really bad spot. They've rejected God, they've prostituted themselves to other worship of other gods. Um, In in Malachi, the mouthpiece of God for this time period says this, the Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, who are the priests? They would be similar to the pastors of our day and age. They were the ones that, that were to offer sacrifices uh, on behalf of the people to God. Uh, they were the ones that, were, that would stand in the gap. Uh, they were to be the leaders of the people in righteousness and goodness. They were held to the standard and, and they weren't. They were receiving bribes, accepting all of this kind of stuff, and, and they weren't doing what they were required to do what they should have been doing. And listen to this. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect that I deserve? You've shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? Well, you've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices at my altar. What are defiled sacrifices? Well, if you go back to Leviticus, one of the most favorite books, and I know every one of you love to read, whenever you're reading through the Bible every year, when you get to Leviticus, you're like, yes, Leviticus! Because it's so full of stuff that is like like an elephant tranquilizer that will knock you out mid-read. But if you understand the basis for Leviticus... It's going to make sense in all other areas of scripture. What is a defiled offering? Cain and Abel. Cain brought a defiled offering. What was it? He just brought some, whatever. I didn't bring the best. The best offerings you can bring to the temple, specifically animal sacrifices, were to be unblemished. That means they couldn't have spots. They couldn't be deformed. They couldn't have a gimp leg. They had to be perfect. They had to be scrutinized to make sure that that most expensive lamb or goat or dove or oxen was to be perfect. It would bring more money on the market if you were to sell it, but it was to be perfect. And God is saying to Malachi, to the people through Malachi, you are bringing me defiled sacrifices on my altar. You're offering stuff to me that is your second, third, or last best. Do you think God needs anything we offer him? No. He's got everything he ever needed. But he desires us. Then you ask, he goes on to say, "How have we defiled? How have we defiled the sacrifices?" Well, he goes on to say, "You defile them by saying Uh, The altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? I mean, try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord. This doesn't sound like the God we have preached to us all the time. Oh, that's an Old Testament God. We don't don't pay him any mind anymore. We have a New Testament God. No, actually, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God of wrath and judgment as much as he is a God of love and mercy. Because he cannot be a God of love and mercy if he's also not a God of wrath and judgment. How I wish... One of you would shut the temple doors so that those worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of the heavens' armies, and I will not accept your offerings. Do we do this today in our churches? Do we come and put in our token time and, and stamp our, our, our time, uh, the, the time clock of worship, so to speak, and then go about the rest of our week and live for ourselves? That's a defiled sacrifice. That's a defiled offering before the Lord. When you just come in out of obligatory worship or just saying it's Sunday, I guess we'll go to, and you drag your butt out of bed and you fight all the way here. And you're like, oh, let's just get this over with. Brandon, please don't preach beyond I didn't hear the right worship song that I wanted. They didn't play the organ today, or the drums, or the guitar, or they didn't do this. They didn't, and you come expecting to be offered to you when this is a place that is a a place of sacrifice. And when this building is empty, guess what? It's just a building. But when God's people gather together. It is a place of worship and sacrifice of praise. And you may fool everyone else around you by belting out the music and the songs and praising your God, but you can never fool God if it's not really in here. That is a defiled sacrifice. That's a blind offering. That's a crippled and diseased offering. We bring before the Lord. And we wonder, why why isn't this happening? Why don't we see signs, wonders, and miracles? It's because we don't give God what he deserves. Why didn't he heal this person from cancer? Why didn't he heal that lame person or that blind person or that deaf person? Why didn't he fix my spouse? What kind of offerings do you give him? What kind of offerings do I give? Well, Brandon, you got it all together. You give him perfect offerings. I mean, we pay you to worship God and to read the Bible. Who was Malachi writing to? The priests, the leaders. Correction from God is a chance for redemption. See, God gently rebukes Cain. See, God had every right to kill Cain on the spot. Boom, you're dead. And he would have been justified. Because God can not only just refuse what we offer, he can cut your life a bit shorter. And he has every right to do that. And we we don't like to hear that. But his mercy withholds that kind of punishment. Do you know how often he withheld punishment from the Israelites in the Old Testament and didn't completely reject them? (laughs) He is a patient God. And he's patient with you and me today too. See, Cain had an opportunity to change. He had an opportunity to get his heart right with God and say, you know what? (sighs) I'm really angry right now, but do I have the right to be angry? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I'm really angry, but why am I so angry? Usually we don't, in the heat of the moment, really evaluate ourselves. We're usually impulsive. But, but the one who has the Holy Spirit in them is self-controlled. Remember, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the one who is in Christ and who Christ is in through the power of the Holy Spirit should have the fruit of self-control. And if you're not producing that, the problem is then you become impulsive whenever anger arises. And that's a dangerous place to be. In your anger, Paul says, sin not. Be angry, but don't sin. How can I be angry and not sin? It takes self-control. Jesus, who went into the temple and stormed the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, and threw over the money changers' tables and the merchants' tables, and he drove them out with a whip, that was a controlled anger. Can you imagine if he was uncontrolled? Because think of what he had to do. In one of our gospels, it says he braided a whip. Is that impulsive? How long does it sit? Are you gonna sit and all right, I'm gonna braid this. I'm really angry right now. I'm gonna count to 10 while while I braid this whip. See, he was controlled and his anger was righteous because it was for the things of God rather than for him. You have made my father's house. A house of thieves and robbers. And it should be a house of prayer. But all too often our anger is about the injustice we feel like we've been served. But how much injustice has God been served by the way we live our lives? How many times has he said, listen, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another opportunity. Stop doing this. The woman caught in the act of adultery. When all was said and done, what does he say to her? He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and stop sinning. See, we like the part of God who lets us off the hook. We don't like the part of God that says, stop doing what you're doing. Right? No matter what culture you're in. No matter if you live in the city or in the country or in a far off country in some other place. The enemy tempts us the way he does everybody else, just with different things at different times. See, crouches at the door, ready to pounce when you just start to crack that door. And he's a bully. He is, if you just... If you take the latch and you turn it, he'll kick it in. Because you've already made the decision once you put the hand on the handle of that door of sin. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? And God says to you and me, be careful. Why are you so angry? If you do what's right, it'll go well with you. The great German composer Mendelssohn, amazing composer. He once visited the cathedral at Freiburg, and having heard the great organ that was in that church, everybody knew about this amazing organ all over the country and even outside of the country. He went to the loft where the organ actually was, and he began to ask, can I play this? The old organist in jealousy for his instrument at first refused, but uh, was afterward prevailed on to the great German composer. See, the old organist of this church didn't know who Mendelssohn was. (laughs) Well, they didn't have mass media, Google, Wikipedia. He couldn't look him up. Didn't even ask his name. Mendelssohn just said, can I play this for a while? No, you may not. This This is mine. You can't touch it. But he was prevailed upon to let Mendelssohn play. After standing by in an ecstasy of delight and amazement for a few moments, he suddenly laid his hands on the shoulders of the musician and exclaimed, Who are you? What, what's your name? Humbly, Mendelssohn said, Mendelssohn. And this guy reflected for a moment. He said, can it be that I had so nearly refused to let Mendelssohn play this organ? See, Christians often refuse to let God have his way in their life because they're afraid of the outcome. Little do they know that if they would let God do as he sees fit, that the outcome would be much greater than anything they could ever dream of. And many of you sitting in here right now are holding back out of fear, are holding back out of frustration. Maybe there's even jealousy or anger in your heart right now, and you're holding back from God the best that you truly do have to offer. But I, I come to church, isn't that enough? I, I give a little bit in the offering, isn't that enough? No, it's not even about that. If, it, if that was the, the reason, then we should shut the doors on the church. That's what he said in Malachi. Just shut the doors on the temple. Shut it all down. I don't care about your offerings. I care about you and what you bring me as a representation of what's inside of you. Do you love God more than anything else in this world? And does your life show that? Do your decisions show that? Do your actions on a daily basis, not just on Sunday mornings, show that? Does your rhetoric and your words about others or about him show that? Does your language show that? Because if not, they're just defiled, crippled disease offerings to God. I close with this passage of scripture, 1 Peter 2, one through three. Get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this kind of nourishment. Do you cry out for that kind of nourishment from God? Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. God could have struck you down anytime, anywhere, and at any time. But the fact that you're here this morning means that he's given you extra breath to breathe for this day. How are you using it? Like Cain or like Abel? Jealousy went unchecked. Drives us to anger. As our worship team comes forward to close us out this morning, here's the deal. I know some of you are here right now and you're just playing this church game. But church isn't a game to be played. It is the body of Christ. It's not a building or a place to go. It is a people who come together to serve and worship God and each other. Not worship each other, but to serve each other. See, if we aren't doing the greatest commandments in this place, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's complete surrender in every area of our lives. Heart, soul, mind, strength. What are those? Take a moment and evaluate yourself. Am I loving God, heart, soul, mind, and everything physically within me? Am I? And do I love my neighbor as myself? See, that's the church, that's the body of Christ. It's not just a time slot in one place on a given Sunday. What offerings are you bringing to God? You bringing him everything or just some things? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and uh, it sounds so curt to even say that, we love you, because it just rolls off the tongue when we should be meditating on what that really means internally. God, we love you. Forgive us where we fall short. Forgive us for giving you second best, third best, or last at times. God, help us to understand what it means to truly sacrifice for you to give you the best of all we have to offer and not just some of what we've produced. Forgive us for falling short. Strengthen us, encourage us, correct us, rebuke us. Redeem us with the blood of Jesus Christ this morning, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Maine, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.